If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Thank you for being a giving church. Uh, we mentioned several weeks ago that we needed some new doors, and we've had over $2,000 above and beyond the regular offerings that have been given for that. And we just thank you for giving from your heart and from your life and from what God is doing. We're talking about the church of fire, the church of fire. What marks our trail? When I was a kid, uh, the story that kind of fascinated me was the story of Hansel and Gretel. You remember the story of Hansel and Gretel? The, the two little children, and they were taken out by the wicked stepmother. The difference is, is that my grandmother was from Germany, and that's a German story. And the way that grandmother, my grandmother told it, it was not the stepmother, it was the mother. That's the original version of the story. And the story came about in the midst of one of the great famines in Europe, and the mother decided that if the, she and the husband were to survive, she needed to get rid of the children. That's a terrible story. You remember the first couple of times that Hansel would take uh, pebbles, white pebbles, and would mark the trail, and then his stepmother or mother would locked him into the room, and the last time he didn't have that option, so he took the bread that his mother had given him and left a, a trail of breadcrumbs. Now, that's the way Kathy normally finds me in the house. It's wherever the pie leads. It's wherever the cake. It's wherever, you know, the cinnamon roll, the breadcrumbs lead to me. But I also, in thinking about this, thought about another trail. When I was just a boy, uh, we had a dog named Sandy. Sandy was a Cocker Spaniel. Sandy was probably one of the gentlest, nicest dogs we've ever had. Uh, I loved animals, still love animals. And Sandy, this Cocker Spaniel, uh, was my great companion. One day I was out front and we were playing with some of the other neighborhood kids and Sandy was not on a leash. We lived on a very busy street, Hardesty. She saw a squirrel across the street and she ran out into the street and was hit by a car. It was not the, other dri it was not the driver's fault and, and he was just aghast and he helped gently to move the dog off the side of the road and I took the dog in my arms and brought it into the house and my father said, let's go to the vet. And the vet said, Sandy needed to be put down. She was too far gone. But I begged my father and I begged the vet not to kill my dog. And the vet gave us some medicine and my dad said, make a, a pallet, a bed for the dog in the basement. And I took the, the dog down to the basement and I would give the medicine and I was the only one the dog would allow near her. Everybody else, she growled and tried to bite. And after a couple of days, I went down one day, and Sandy was not on the pallet. It's the first time I'd been carrying her out when she needed to relieve herself and bringing her back, and she wasn't on the pallet. And I realized there was a trail of blood, blood spots that led to the very back in the basement, to the old coal bin, and Sandy was there. And when she saw me, dogs don't talk, but this dog said, don't do this anymore to me. And we took Sandy to the vet, and we put her down. You say, Pastor, that's a horrible story. The only worst story is that if you look through the book of Acts, there's a trail of blood. Blood drops where believers were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Drops of blood marked the trail of the early church. And my question to you is, what marks your trail as a believer? Hebrews 11, 37 and 38 says this. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And that last phrase just kills me. The world was not worthy of them. This world was not worthy of the believers who, who left a trail of blood because of their belief. 
And my question to us today, as we look at this church in Acts that was on fire, what marks our trail? Are we leaving breadcrumbs or are we leaving blood for Jesus Christ? Would we be willing to give up everything for him? We'll look at Acts chapter 8. The, the first part of this, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25, it talks about God's trail has unexpected twists. It's not a, a smooth, easy trail. It has, it has some real detours. It has some twists. And although there are 25 verses in this first section, we're just going to read verses 1 through 8. The rest of it's your homework assignment. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul was there. Where? Well, he was at Stephen's stoning when Stephen was put to death. When Stephen died for Jesus Christ, Saul was there, and look what it says, giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy, Saul who would one day become known as Paul, began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ, or the anointed one, the Messiah, there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. And many paralytics, those paralyzed and cripples, were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A lot of twists. Uh, let me just mention two of them. Number one, God uses circumstances we avoid. God, one of the twists is that God will use circumstances that we tend to avoid. Stephen's death opened up this flood. It was a floodgate of persecution, and, and it was a horrible thing. And there are powerful images. It says Paul began to destroy the church. Luminaio. Luminaio. Uh, lumina, luma aino is the, a picture that's so horrible. I, I, I hate to even mention it, but we need to know it. It was only used of a wild boar shredding someone's body. A wild animal or, uh, uh, coming in and finding this person who couldn't defend themselves and shredding the body. That's the, the, the word that's used here. And it's in the imperfect tense. It means ongoing. It's savage. It's sadistic cruelty. And did you notice it says Saul dragged the men and women. That's unheard of in his society. Women didn't go to their death for their faith. He dragged the men and the women. And the word drag, it, it, all of this, it, it's the same word that's used in John when it says that they dragged the net full of fish up on shore. You know that the net was getting torn and the fish were getting torn. And he was dragging them literally along the ground. John Sott says, religion without the Holy Spirit, religion without the true God in control is the cruelest force in the world. And later Saul, who by then had become known as Paul, admits in Acts 22.4, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. And this persecution, this, this horror that broke out on the church as, as many were dying for their faith, when that broke out, something happened because all of the rest of the believers were scattered. And Satan's going, yes, if I persecute them enough, I'm going to scatter this church. In the Indeed magazine, the Indeed devotional, we, we get this, and it's out there. You can pick it up. It's free for this week on the 27th. This is what it says. It's called Refiner's Fire. There's a, a reference to Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, the Lord is speaking. Those whom I love, I rebuke 
and discipline. If the Lord loves you, he's going to rebuke you and discipline. Rarely do we see, rarely, the, the commentary, rarely do we view the difficult circumstances of life as statements of God's love for us. We more likely interpret them as in interruptions in our walk with God. In our best moments, we may interpret these interruptions as tools God will use to stretch our faith. In our worst moments, we may even see them as his disfavor. disfavor. But we still tend to view them as distractions from the course he would have us pursue. But God's hand is in even the most difficult circumstances, letting affliction have its deepest results. It concludes by saying his method is like a refiner's fire. Folks, let me put it to you this way. We're going through a tough time in our nation. And we have been praying that God would take this tough time away from our nation. We've been praying that God would do something different, that we don't like the pain anymore. We've been praying that, that some political change would come about. Why don't we start praying instead that God will bring a spiritual change to this nation? Why don't we pray that God will use this time, this difficult time, with the economics and the job situation and the people who are hurting, why don't we pray God use this to draw, you cl- draw us close to you? And we may be scattered as a sense. We may feel like the church is struggling because of that. And I'm here to tell you the church is not struggling because the true church of Jesus Christ is going forward. And the true church of Jesus Christ is on fire. Where the, new church, where the church scattered, new believers were born. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. This is what Paul says. We are hard-pressed on every side. We're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted But we are not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. James tells us that the the trials in our life are those things that are positive. It will teach us discipline. It will teach us us endurance. These are the times that God can use in our life. We're not masochists. I do not enjoy pain. You know the, the exercise things, no pain, no gain? I say, fine, just no pain. Forget the gain. We don't like pain, but God can use anything to his good. You know Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God uses circumstances we avoid. Number two, God removes barriers we think are impenetrable. God's going to break down those walls. God's going to take away those barriers that we think are impenetrable. You remember Jesus said in Acts 1 that they were going to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now, when the disciples heard that, they had a reaction that you and I probably don't get. I mean, Jerusalem, yes, that's the, that's the holy city. Judea is the region around that. That's okay, but Samaria is north. In 722, the Assyrians came in. They captured the northern ten tribes of Israel, and they took many of them into captivity and took them away. But those that did not go into captivity, and even some that went into captivity, Assyria had a really insidious way of, of insulating themselves. What they did is they intermarried. So some of the Assyrians intermarried with the Jews. And there's where the, Sumerians, the Samaritans came from. And because they were intermarried, the, those in the southern tribe were highly prejudiced against them. But it gets worse because 
when they looked at the history, they didn't like what they saw in the Old Testament, so they, the Samaritans said only the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch, those are the only books that are really of God, and they only wanted to, to follow Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and everything beyond that they just rejected as not true. But it gets worse because they also erected a rival temple. The temple was in Jerusalem that was off limits to them. So they went to Mount Gerizim and they they erected this rival temple and they came and brought their sacrifices there. Eventually in 93 uh, B.C., right before Jesus came, the temple was destroyed. And when the disciples heard that they were supposed to go to, and I will quote from a rabbi, Samaritans are a mongrel nation of half-breeds. A typical prayer of a rabbi in Jesus' day was, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. I mean, these guys, they hated them. And when the disciples heard, we're supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, I'm sure they're thinking, oh, that's not going to happen. Pious Jews would not even travel through Samaria. Jesus' disciples were shocked when Jesus said he had to go through Samaria, and he met the woman at the well. They were split, they were prejudiced, there was hatred, there was bigotry. And Philip, a Hellenistic Jew, if you remember from last week, who served tables, was empowered by the Holy Spirit, was empowered by God to go into them, not only to preach to them, but to perform unbelievable miracles. Look over at at chapter 8, verse 14. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized into the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This was a new thing that God was doing. And I believe God wanted to know that they were accepted. He wanted to authenticate what was happening with this group. And so he sends Peter and John and they check and they see this is the real deal. And I don't think this is normative. I think it's an exception when the Holy Spirit comes at a later date. We know that from everywhere else in Acts. You'll see when we get there. It's not a new paradigm. But God saw that the Samaritans had come, this group that was so hated, and God said, let me show you that they're just as important as the Jewish people who've already accepted Jesus Christ. And God removes barriers that we think are impenetrable. Do you think God could remove the barriers in your life? Is there a mountain you feel like you can't climb? Do you think that you've got a valley that's too deep that you can't go through? Do you think that there's a river that's too wide? Do you think that there's something, this big wall that's been built up? I want to go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. Look at what it says. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the Lord says, listen, when you come to me, I can take care of those things. Biblical scholar Daniel Bach writes, Stephen's unjust, tragic death, which looked as if it had resulted in all being lost, in fact resulted in everything being gained. You see, God's trail has unexpected twists. There are going to be some circumstances that we don't like. There are going to be some, peop- or some barriers that are going to be broken down. But go to the last part of this. God's trail also leads to unexpected people. To unexpected people. In Acts chapter 8, go to verse 26. We continue the story. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, that desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, 
queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then look at what Philip does in verse 30. Then Philip sauntered over. Then Philip just edged over. No, it says Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. In Old, Old Testament and New Testament times, many times if you read, you always read out loud. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. Verse 31, how can, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture, Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch said, uh, asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly snatched, took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. What do we find out about this? I think there are three things that we need to learn, that we need to, to see that Philip did, that we're supposed to do. When God leads us to unexpected people, here's the first thing we do. Be available to follow God's leading. Philip was available. When he saw what God was doing, he was available to go to another assignment. He left Samaria. And do you understand, Samaria was the happening place. Samaria was the church that was growing. Samaria was where miracles were happening. Samaria was this place close to Jerusalem, and it was an exciting place. And where does he go? He goes out into the desert to meet one man, an Ethiopian, a man who'd been castrated because many of the men who worked in the court, especially around the queen, around the harem, they were castrated so there wouldn't be any funny business. I was going to make a joke about Congress, but it's too close to the truth. We don't even want to go there. But this man was, in, was so close to the king, and the, the king of Ethiopia was known as the sun king. He was considered too spiritual, too holy to have to do anything every day. And so they just sat around, and they fanned him, and they gave him grapes, and the woman did all of the work. Yeah, 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 I know. That's what happens at our house, too. But that's why the queen, Candace, and that's the, the whole idea of Candace, that was actually like the Ming dynasty. It was a dynasty name. But all of the women, a whole line of women in this area, called Ethiopia here probably more like our modern Sudan. But these northern Africans, they came in there and they saw that. And, and this man had a huge, very powerful position. This one man in the desert. Now, if I'm Philip, I'm saying, Lord... I had this great thing going on in Samaria. Why have you brought me down here? But Philip didn't do that. When the Lord said, get close, he got close. The Ethiopian had made a spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He was seeking the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all, your, all of your heart. And Philip was the one that God decided he was going to use Philip 
to answer this man's quest. Isaiah 6, 8. The Lord says to Isaiah, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. If the Lord said, I want you to go from your place of comfort, this place where everything's just right, and send you into the desert to meet one guy, this guy that's considered a little strange because there's no chance he wasn't a black man. There's no chance that he was an African, a new ethnic group. There's no chance that Philip, when he encountered him, would not have thought, oh, this is a different group than what I've talked to before. But Philip didn't do that. Philip said, Lord, where do you want me? Number two, be ready to expedite God's timing. God said, go, and Philip ran. God said, get close, and he, he jumped in. And by the way, this whole situation where the road went from Jerusalem to Gaza, that was a very well-known road. In fact, it was a road built by the Romans. When it went across stone, they actually they, they put etching into the stone so that the chariot wheels would not, would, would not uh, swerve, and, and especially when it was wet, they wouldn't slip. It's where we get the whole idea of going to the concrete today, where they groove the concrete. We got that from the Romans who were doing that before the time of Christ. And that road is still there, some of it etched into the rock. And when I was in Jerusalem, one of the guides, the first time when I was there with the pastors, he said, would you like to see where the Ethiopian was baptized? I said, well, that would be impossible to know, all the water. He says, there's only four places along that road that have water. And we visited three of them. And one of the places we got out and hiked a mile to get to this Roman road, and you could see it. All the other sites are these little water cisterns where the, the water from the rock would, would come down into this small little pot of water. And when we got to this one that we hiked to, it's this big, huge cistern. It looks like a baptistry. And even when we were there, it was full of water. And we could walk down, and we realized that it came up to about your waist. Then the Ethiopian, as he's reading, comes to this. And I think he was at Ain Yael, where I saw it. And he's reading Isaiah 53. Do you realize if, if Philip had been just a few minutes earlier, he would have not gotten to Isaiah 53 and would not have had that question. If he'd been a little later, he may have been on to another topic, but he was right there where it was describing the Messiah. You ever miss what God is doing because the timing is not right? The disciples were with Jesus, and, and, and they're there, and they know that if Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, to that area, that he's in trouble. And word comes that, that Lazarus is sick. This friend of, of his with Mary and Martha, his, his two sisters, they send him word that Lazarus is sick, and, and Jesus doesn't get up and go, and, and they're thinking it's because of the danger. And, and finally, Jesus says, you guys don't get it. In John eleven seven, Jesus says, then he said to his disciples, let's go, to, let's go back to Judea. And, and the disciples, there in the Sea of Galilee area where they are, they're saying, Lord, if you go back there, they're going to kill you. If you go back, they're going to arrest you. If you go back, do you understand what, what the danger is? And he says, listen, Lazarus is asleep. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, the fever is broken. He says, no, you guys don't get it. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus waited till Lazarus died. Jesus waited until by the time he got there, there was four days that Lazarus had been dead so they could have no question that Lazarus had died and that Jesus would bring him back from the dead. Be ready to expedite God's timing. It says that, that right after that, the spirit of the Lord took Philip 
Arpazo, that's the Greek word. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, it says that Paul is caught up into the, into the third heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, Arpazo, we are going to be caught up to meet him, with, to meet the Lord in the air. It's this snatching away. I don't know if it just means that he, he ran over to the Azazo. I don't think so. I think the Lord literally transported him over there. God's timing is rarely our timing. I mean, why didn't God allow him to stay with this Ethiopian? He's just met Jesus Christ. He's just found out a few, few things. Are you kidding me? Be available to follow God's leading. Be ready to expedite God's timing. Here's the last one. Be willing to share God's message. Be willing to share God's message. He said, how can I know, verse 31, how can I know unless someone explains it to me. He uses a very rare word. Luke is good at his vocabulary. Luke is very precise. If you ever take Greek, stay away from Luke because he has this huge vocabulary. But the word he uses explained there is, is a Greek word that literally means to take a blind man and guide him where he needs to go. He says, how can I, I'm like a blind man now. And what did Philip do? Did he go to Psalm 22:1, where it, it, it predicts that the Messiah will be, will be talking to the Father and saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And did he explain that Jesus said that on the cross? Did he go to Psalm 34:20, where it, it says that on the anointed one, the Messiah, when he comes, no bone will be broken? Did he go to Psalm 69:21, where it talks about there will be gall and vinegar for his thirst and for his hunger? Did he, did he maybe go to Psalm 118:20, where it says that, that the Messiah would be rejected like a stone and would come? Come back to, to, to trip them up. Did he go to Isaiah 42.1 where it says, This is my chosen servant. Listen to him. And several times at the baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the voice comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved son. This is my servant. Listen to him. Did he go maybe to Isaiah 49.7 where it says the Redeemer will be despised? Did he go to Isaiah 50 verse 6 where it says, that the, the, the anointed one will say, I will offer my back to those who beat me. He explained Jesus. Literally what it says from that passage, he gospeled him. Because it's using the word good news that we normally use as, as a noun or a descriptive term, uses it as a verb. He, he evangelized, he, he gospeled him, he gave him the good news about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross for you and for me. And the Ethiopian immediately accepted Christ as his Savior. There's a very strong tradition that there was a huge church that was built in Sudan and Ethiopia because this one man went back and told others about Jesus Christ. But did you notice it says that when Philip was taken away, he went to Azotus and he preached the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Caesarea Maritime, that would have been up the coast. He went up to Caesarea. In fact, we know that's exactly where he ended because there was one more group he needed to tell about Jesus Christ. One more group that's contained in the scripture that tells us that Philip never quit talking about Jesus Christ. Because if you go to Acts 21, 8 and 9, Paul 
is on this journey. Luke is with him. It says, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime. That's where we found the, the inscription of, of, of Pontius Pilate. We saw that when we were there. And he stayed at the home of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He wants to make sure that we understand who that is. And the other group that he evangelized, that he gospeled, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Twenty years later, Philip, in his household, had four daughters who were powerfully used of God in a society where women were all very often overlooked. Be willing. Be available. Be ready. Be available to follow God's leading. Be ready to expedite God's timing. Be willing to share God's message. In 1949, China Inland Mission was devastated. The communists had come in, they'd taken over China, and, and all of the work that Hudson Taylor and others had been doing up to that point meant that 737 missionaries were expelled. Some of them were killed as they were leaving. And China Inland Mission was gutted. And that, that, was, that had been their whole focus, just to go to China. And they didn't know what to do with these 737 missionaries. And some of them came back and they became pastors. And when they became pastors in the States, they began to raise huge amounts of money to send missionaries out. But 286 of them within four years were in Japan and Laos and Vietnam and other areas around there. And they began to do a work, 286 missionaries. And 10 years later, in 1959... Some believers went in incognito and they began to visit some of the churches where these missionaries had been and they expected to see the churches torn down and they were. And they expected not to be able to find any example or any result from all of the time those 737 missionaries were there. And this is what they found. The churches, the physical churches, the buildings had been destroyed but underground as they began to take the contacts names and the Chinese people's names, they began to meet with them and they were meeting in caves and they were meeting under bridges and they were meeting at night, and they were need meeting at other places, and they found out that in 10 years, the church had a 3,000% growth with new believers after the missionaries left, because our God is an amazing God, and he is not done until he's done. And when the church is on fire, God says, I will build my church. My question is, are you available? Are you ready? Are you willing? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you today and we understand an incredible price was paid for us at Calvary. The cost was beyond our comprehension. And the pain, not just the physical pain, but the spiritual pain of literally taking all of our sins will never be able to to comprehend that, God. But thank you for that. And just like in the song that we sing, Father, the stand, what can I say? What can I do? But offer this heart, oh God, to you. The truth is, Father, you've called us and loved us and empowered us to go, to be available, to be willing, to be ready. So thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your, for your forgiveness. May we respond out of love to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.